The painting that's on the screens is a fresco in a church in Italy made in the 15th century, and it is a depiction of the death of Adam. I use this to describe where we have been through the first five chapters of Genesis. Now, at the end of chapter five, and as I begin the reading on chapter six, only now has Adam died. He has lived through the successive generations of his own children. Not Abel's line, because Abel was murdered. Cain's line, seven generations long, the Bible reports. And Seth's line, 10 generations long. The 10th generation being Noah. Noah has yet to be born in this scene, but all the other generations are there, and they are crowding around Adam. And only now, only now with his death, of natural causes has mortality come to their conscience. He dies. If he dies, we all die. The picture you can, the, the person you can barely pick out in the middle is Seth. Seth is leaning over Adam's body in the center. He's planting a seed, a twig. The tree that's in the background, you can see how interrupted it is. This is, a, this is a painting on plaster. And after about 500 years, some of the plaster breaks off. Though this has been recently restored wonderfully. You can't restore what's not there. Uh, part of Seth is missing in this picture. But the seed that's there, Adam had asked Seth to give me some seed of the tree of life so that I do not die. This is the last request the dying Adam makes of his oldest son. Seth goes to Michael, who guards the garden, and Michael says, no, you, the reason why you guys aren't in the garden is so that you don't have access to the tree of life. But I'll give you access to the tree of good and evil again. Take this seed planted in Adam, and we'll see what life comes from it. This is a medieval legend called the legend of the true cross, in which a tree sprouts up from Adam, and over a period of time, only at the end, of uh, the middle of time, if you will, in the, in the telling of the story, the tree is chopped down and the lumber is used for the cross of Christ. And that will be Adam's life. And it'll be life for us. Over in the far right-hand side, you see Seth. He's seated. Some are around him. He now knows he's the next to die. When will it be? Some panic. Death is upon us. Some despair are paralyzed by it, Seth fears and wonders what God is doing. That's where we are. Let's pray. Oh God, light of the minds that know you, life of the souls that love you, strength of the thoughts that seek you, help us so to know you that we truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you whose service is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. 
They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord God said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 6. And then it got worse. Admittedly, it's not clear to me if what I just read here is a description of the unending descent of a falling humanity a humanity which is about to hit bottom, like a man falling, jumping off a tall building, chapter 6 telling the story of this last lowest level, or the further description of just how far humanity had long fallen, all at once, a humanity whose complexity in evil may yet be developing, but whose heart has long been persistently wicked, chapter 6 telling us how long, how low humanity has long lived. In either case, this is now the wickedness worse than which there is none. This first enigmatic story, sons of God, daughters of men, brief and ambiguous, is that description. The powerful desire and take whatever, whoever, they want, and do so without conscience or consequence. This is the era of might takes right, makes right, or better said, might is all. The population increasing, the opportunity for wickedness, wickedness grows in proportion. The loathsomeness of wickedness is at its nadir. Powerful men took vulnerable women, whoever and as many ever as they chose. There are only two kinds of people now. Not the before and after innocence of Adam and Eve, not that. Not the favored and unfavored Cain and Abel, not that. Not even the arrogant line of Cain and the humbler line of Seth, not that. There is only now the violent who succeed, and the victim who suffers. 
This is the age of the mighty ones, the heroes of ancient lore, the Bible tells us, the Nephilim, the Bible calls them. Think of Goliaths, twice the size of the other men about them, stronger, more resourceful, better positioned, unhindered, unstoppable, more advantaged in every way, but morally. They take and take away. This sons of daughter, sons of God, daughters of men thing is human breeding for human strengthening, for human exploitation, for perpetual dominance, for wickedness with impunity, an invulnerability from vengeance, crime without the punishment, without the possibility of punishment. Their only worry, well, the same as Cain's and evil Lamech's after the acts of violence before them, that someone might come and take vengeance on them. But in this generation, no one can. They are the mighty men. They are too strong, and now they are too many. They are like sons of God among daughters of men. The realization of death, Adam's death, has become a motive for remembered glory. Remember Lamech and his bragging to be known for his violence, he asks. Glory is the celebration of murderous deeds. Mortality, its knowledge, has become the cause of war. In the Greek classics of their ancient men, Serpedon, the mortal son of Zeus, speaking to Glaucus on the eve of battle, Glaucus kind of backing off of it. Man, supposing that you and I, escaping this battle, would, would be able to live on forever, ageless and immortal. If so, if that were true, you and I would not go on fighting in the front lines, and I wouldn't urge you to stand with me in the fights where men gain glory. But seeing that, the spirits of the dying, of death, stands close by us all. No one can turn aside, no one can hide from it. Let's go out and get glory for ourselves, or yield it to others. There's no common humanity here anymore. Only this is in common. If you can, you do. If you cannot, you are no more. Eve's children now by nature do what she did once in innocence and by the craft of a shrewd serpent. They take, they eat. They take, and they take away life. This is the first generation not to know Eve. Remember, Adam has just died. The mother all, of all living has just died before this. Eve did not see this, Noah's generation. God has shown Eve mercy by not letting her witness what had become of her own. But God saw it. His first move is to limit the length of years for everyone. The violence of the strong, the suffering of the weak. No longer the 90 plus years of chapter five, it's now 120. No more for all of us. The newly decreed divine dimensions define life's limits. But for our sake, no one may oppress for a near millennium anymore. No longer will anyone suffer for centuries. But it's not enough. You know it. 
More is surely needed here. This necessary move contains the wickedness, but it does not end it. What had God seen? The Bible says straightforwardly, it's a convoluted sentence. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You can't miss it. That's the Bible's first description of the human heart. Thinking up evil, every part of it, all the time, no remainder. This is us. But now, gloriously, now for the first time in the Bible, we hear of what is on God's heart. His heart is deeply troubled. The Bible will use that expression very rarely. The brothers of Dinah upon hearing of her rape. Jonathan, when he hears his father, King Saul, has determined and now plotted to kill his best friend David. And David, when he hears that his beloved son Absalom has died. This third occurrence is pertinent. Absalom is if as Nephilim. This son of David, he's stronger, he's more beautiful than his brothers and peers. A son of God, not just a son of a king, he's described. He's more ruthless and violent than his contemporaries. Like Cain, he will kill his own brother. Unlike Cain, he wants and exacts vengeance. He rebels against David and for a long while succeeds. Living in David's city and in David's palace, sitting on David's throne and commanding David's army, sleeping with David's wives, the daughters of men, if you will, and doing so in public to humiliate his father, daring anyone to challenge him. When later David hears that his own return to rule has finally been won again, and thus some order, some measure of justice can be reestablished, and though he had given strict orders that Absalom not be harmed, he hears Absalom has died. When he hears it, David weeps. His heart, the Bible says, was deeply troubled. Think of a sea with a storm, not on its surface, but in its depth. It churns, it moves, it rolls. It is dangerous. Like troubled Absalom, our self-destructive ways trouble God. This is not anger, friends. This is grief. This is heartbreak. If it is anger at all, it is not anger at his prized creation, but as at what has become of it. In his troubled heart, God regrets it all. He repents, some translations will say, meaning God will change course. As if God had said this will not do, he determines he will do differently. He, God, will change. Humanity clearly cannot save itself. God will need to do this. The story of Noah and the ark, which is about to begin, is not a story of change in humanity, but in God. God, I find the thought wonderful. I delight in it. God tells us this about himself. While exposing our innermost wicked thoughts, that's not a happy thought, and the terrible troubles and the crimes we commit casually and now naturally, 
God reveals his own troubled heart and his new resolve. God will start over. This wickedness, this never-ending violence against the vulnerable, the corruption of the ways and the means of humanity, the wickedness that has taken root in humanity and has destroyed humanity, it must end. Or humanity will end. Humanity cannot survive humanity. A new Adam must be found. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And with that brief announcement, the whole world is about to change, all because God will now change his ways with humanity. What had God been doing? He had provided life and liberty, a lot of life, a lot of liberty, provision and protection, the abundance of a garden, the promise of divine defense, a maximum of years and a minimum of restrictions. God had been, for those of us who know him from the full gospel of the Bible, not surprisingly generous, God always is, but surprisingly hands off. The first creation had been all about God, in the beginning God. The second one had been about God and the human ones together in the garden. The third one, including these lines of Seth and Cain, had been long lines of humanity going their own way. And it was ending horribly. Humanity was horribly ending. Humanity, if it has any excuse, might be tempted to say, in my defense, I was left unsupervised. God has been quiet. He is almost unmentioned in the last chapter. In the Bible's first chapter, God had been the subject of every sentence. God has been hands off. But, never again. The age, the eon, the experiment in human autonomy is over. It had failed. Not God. Maybe not even us. But us without God has failed. This must end. This generation will end. There has been great wickedness, and now there is great grief. At the end of the story, there will be great grace. Not only for Noah, but for all of humanity, indeed for all of creation. There will be law and consequences. There will be covenant, and thus a partnership with a shared purpose. There will be a promise to never again let humanity fall so far that destruction by a flood would ever again be necessary. But now, it is necessary. The disordering, the chaos of human nature and invention is so self-destructive that a divinely ordered chaos is to be preferred. And just as at the first creation, the Spirit of God will hover over the waters, creating a new order from a watering chaos, watery chaos. Noah, as if not of his own generation, but of another. Noah is described as righteous, good and true with those about him, blameless, in a right standing before God. 
The Bible will say Noah walked faithfully with God. The Bible will say this only of one other person, his great-grandfather Enoch. A rare Hebrew phrase, I think is well translated, it was with God that Noah walked. This too is grace, an early grace. Noah's father, Lamech, said the boy will comfort. That's his name, that's what Noah means. It's a prediction, it's a promise. Noah is the Bible's first birth accompanied with a promise. Christ's birth will be the last one. This too is an early grace. God gives Noah commands. God has not commanded anything, it seems, since his first command to fill the earth. At the end of this story, God will repeat this very same command. The Bible says, God said, dot, 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 and then God said, dot, 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 and then God said. This is the Bible's way of saying that God did all the talking. Noah is silent. Noah never speaks in these four chapters of the story of the flood. We are not told what Noah said or what he thought. This omission is not, I'm arguing, not recording, is not not recording what Noah said. It is recording that Noah said nothing. What is there to say? Got that right, God? This is a story about God, more so, much more so than about Noah. Noah is not a hero. He's not a king. He's not a mighty man. He's not a Nephilim. He's not a son of God. Noah is simply obedient. Three times the story tells us Noah did as the Lord commanded. Noah was not innocent like Adam, once without sin and uninstructed. Noah has some wisdom. He has been instructed. Neither is he wise as a serpent or innocent as a dove. Adam had heard the sound of God walking in the garden and hid. Noah hears God and obeys. Noah is simply obedient. And that too is a grace given us. God dictates the blueprints of the ark to Noah. There will be no rudder because there's no steerage. There's no crow's nest because there's no navigation. There's no deck because there's no captain on board. This is a box that floats. Noah will have no more control over his watery path than did the baby Moses in a basket on the Nile, which is the Bible's only other time for using the word ark. Noah is not savior. Noah is saved. God is savior. The ark will be the space of salvation. There will be animals, there will be family, there will be few, but there will be enough for a restart. This is severe, but it is a severe grace. Humanity, creation, will survive. It might even thrive now. The Bible is an act of divine self-revelation. In it, God tells stories about God. In his first long story of the Bible, God tells us of his heart. He needs to. Without this telling, we would conclude, I think, that a harsh deity nearly destroyed his own creation. An unforgiving judge sought to end his offender. An anger was vented. A wrath had its way. The epics of the other ancient Near Eastern peoples read that way, and without apology. But not God's own word about himself. This is not a portrait of an angry tyrant exacting his pound of flesh. 
but of a grieving parent changing tactics to protect her child, a troubled teacher with a student whose willful ignorance is suicidal, a coach, a mentor, whose efforts so far have not succeeded and now commits to a new manner of instruction, lest the new one, the young one, in his charge is no more. Yes, we are horrified at the thought of the flood. But I think we understand it, at least partially. Human chaos distorts and destroys. Divine chaos will instruct and set a new beginning. Make no mistake, friends. This is not a God to be trifled with. And this is a God who will not let us go. And thus, we cannot be let go on our own way. God has resolved to save. Again, it's a severe salvation, but it saves. God saves. God does not hate in these early Genesis stories. God will not let us hate either. We cannot hate Adam and Eve. They were deceived and innocent and then lost nearly everything, keeping only life and the one who created their lives. The Bible will not let us hate Cain. Instead, we are to sympathize with his inability to control his own anger, an anger which cost him all but his life and his God. Further, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps very surprisingly, no one in these stories has repented of any of this. They may or may not be learning, we are, but none of them have repented until God. God repents. God provides the model of our own needed repentance. Wisdom requires that we turn away from that which leads to death and turn toward that which leads to life. God, if I can use the expression, had indulged our insistence on independence. But no longer. God will not indulge his anger, and God will not any longer indulge our rebellion. God resolves differently. And the world is saved. God had in the beginning seen all things and declared it all good, very good, now God sees nothing but evil always in the heart of the human heart. This deeply troubles his own heart. Not against us, but for us. This is grace. God remembered his purposes in Eden, a peaceful creation at peace with itself and its creator, and at its center, at its head, as its steward, a covenant partner created in his own image and likeness with whom God would share his own Sabbath. The story of Noah and the flood is about the first, yes, terrifying step of turning again toward that peace, that partnership, that stewardship, that Sabbath. And as we will learn in every Bible story, it is God who takes the first step. He turns. He turns toward us 
always. This the Bible calls grace. It is found in the deeply troubled heart of God. Let us pray. Give us this grace. We are in need. Give us the courage to know ourselves and see ourselves at least partially as you see us in our need. And give us the wisdom also to repent and to turn away from that which leads to death and towards that which leads to life. And give us this grace, even this grace of knowing that you turn toward us in grace. Amen.